You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. As the war machine keeps turning. Death and hatred to mankind. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast at a later date, 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscana. I'm hosting today's program as I have been for the last 43 years. That's right. Alan Jones, eat your heart out, but we'll speak about that later. We'll speak about that uh, cancerous influence on Australian politics later on. Now, if you're wondering what anarchy is all about, anarchos without rulers, the anarchist project is to create a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions, not hundreds of millions, but billions of people, inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power that share wealth and to share Sorry, share power and to share wealth. It's a simple struggle. It's been going on since uh, we first, uh, human beings were first first, uh, developed, right? From the very early stages, we've been going through that phase that uh, there's been people who's trying to impose their will on others and others fighting back. But the central questions for all people who think they're anarchists is the fact that it's inequalities, inequalities in power and wealth and the struggles about sharing power and wealth. So if you're involved in campaigns to devolve power and share wealth, you're an anarchist whether you accept the label or not. Okay, let's move on. Now, a few cautionary tales for young kiddies this morning. Now, I've applied for many business loans during my long life on this planet. And one of the major questions which determines whether you receive a business loan or not, not just depending on your ideas and your business viability, is one of the major major questions you have to answer is, do you receive more than 25% of your income from a single source? And if you say yes, the chances of you receiving that loan are greatly diminished because obviously the difference between a viable business that's a financially viable and non-financially viable business is determined you know, by the people you interact with, the people you sell, buy or provide services for. Now, I find it strange that we live in Australia and everybody's getting upset 
about the Chinese government through the Chinese Communist Party getting a little bit huffy about the relationship with Australia. Now, another cautionary tale is based on the concept, don't bite the hand that feeds you because there may be consequences. And it's all very well for Mr Morrison and the Australian government and opposition to say we need an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19, which I agree with 100%, but it's how you approach the situation. Let's not forget that one-third of our Australia's educational revenue comes from China. One-third of our agricultural products are exported to China. Over 60% of all our mineral products, well, they're not our mineral products, you know, the mineral products which are exported in this country on behalf of a handful of uh, corporations are exported to China. And that's the key word, China, 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 China. So if you look at that, one, the Chinese government through trade associations is basically supporting the Australian economy. And two, it's a little bit like you've got a friend, okay, or an acquaintance. You get on with, uh, you tolerate them, but they've got foibles. Uh, you may them be, you may hear them be sexist or racist or homophobic, and you decide to tackle the issue. You can do it two ways. You can tackle them head on, and that's the end of that relationship, and you, you know, take the consequences. And I've done that on a number of occasions. Or you can tackle it in a more subtle way. And obviously, it's important that, as far as the Chinese relationship is concerned, that it's I mean, you, get, you should tackle it in a more subtle way because if we do not diverse, diversify our industrial pattern and our export patterns and our agricultural industries and our mining industries, we will always be dependent on somebody else, whether it's Great Britain, whether it's the United States, whether it's an emerging economy like Indonesia or Brazil, we'll be dependent on somebody else. And what happens in this country is totally dependent on that relationship. So there are different ways of achieving the same result. There are many ways to skin a rabbit. Not that I'd know, because I've never skinned a rabbit. There are many ways to by which you can conduct a relationship. So all these people are calling, uh, crying crocodile tears and saying it's not fair. Just look at the situation from the other perspective. Because if you're totally dependent for your income on somebody, or it's the, whether you're working for a firm, if you go in and kick shins, you'll find yourself out the door on your butt. If you go in and kind of try to discuss the situation, maybe the response will be different. Okay, let's move on to something even more, another cautionary tale. Now, a lot of Australians are just beginning to realise what the COVID-19 shutdown means for them. 50% of the Australian workforce, and that excludes the 2 million people who are on temporary work visas and refugees and asylum seekers who've got uh, working rights who are not covered by a job seeker or job keeper, 
50% of the Australian workforce are currently dependent on job seeker or job keeper. That's one in two workers. And as the shutdown begins to be gradually lifted across the country, different state jurisdictions are lifting the shutdown in different ways, taking into account their local conditions. As we are, as I said last week, a federation of states, and the states do have extraordinary powers, as well as the federal government has extraordinary powers. What we've noticed is that the debate now has turned from the honeymoon phase to reality. That's right. And when Mr Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, gets up and says, there's no money tree, boys and girls. There's no money tree. It's going to have to be paid back some way. And you need to read between the lines because they do have plans for this to be paid back. And it's not going to be paid back by the corporate sector. It's not going to be paid back by large businesses because the words they are using is deregulation, more deregulation, and already in an over-deregulated marketplace, which means less rules in place to protect people and protect uh, workers in this country. They're talking about uh, changes in labour relations. You know, changes in labour relations. What does that mean? It's very simple. That means increasingly putting downward pressure on wages, more importantly, stripping away conditions that have been won over generations. Before the COVID-19 crisis, we saw this government re-elected, although it had stripped away some of the overtime payments of some of the poorest workers in this country. Then there is discussion about no increase in the basic wage. Discussions about making society more business-friendly and dropping business uh, tax, uh, company tax rates, and the list goes on and on. So the Liberal National Party, the chance of the Liberal National Party changing its economic spots, changing its economic philosophy are less than the chances of a leopard changing its spots. That's right, less. Nothing has changed as far as their economic agenda is concerned. So what does that mean for the rest of Australia? Now, let's not forget that 50% of working people, almost 7 million people, you know, permanent residents and citizens, are not working currently and they're being supported by the government through job seeker and job keeper. Well, obviously, when the COVID 19, a crisis is contained, and containment seems to be quite possible. Not eradicated, but contained. And little spot fires around the country are kept in check. The government has big plans for you, huge plans. And those plans, as I said before, included removing me the protections you have, deregulating the labour force, uh, decreasing social security payments, 
and more importantly, decreasing or increasing the bar which people have to jump in order to receive uh, single parents benefits, disability support pensions and old age pensions. So their plans are to extract their 30 pieces of silver from you, your children, your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. That's their plan and nothing will shift them from that. Nothing. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now, over the last six months, and I've spoken about this before, but I'm going to speak about it again because a number of people have brought it to my attention once again. Facebook has made a very important decision. And that decision is that public interest before corporate interest does not meet community standards, okay? So if you're on Facebook and you're trying to interlink with pipsy.net, P-I-B-C-I dot net, it won't happen. You'll get this little thing come up saying this, whatever, does not meet community standards. Now, I see this as a vindication of the policies which are being promoted by public interest before corporate interest. Now, Facebook is a private corporation. I mean, many of us use Facebook because it's free and it gives us access to lots of people we normally would not have access to. But the price you pay is your data becomes their highway to profitability, they make their money through advertising. You don't pay for the resource, therefore you have no rights whatsoever in Facebook. So Facebook could make arbitrary decisions like saying an organisation which promotes a universal basic income, an organisation that promotes gender equality, an organisation which... uh, uh, struggles against racism, an organisation which struggles against homophobia, an organisation which supports cooperatives and collectives, an organisation which supports the nationalisation of essential infrastructure, an organisation which supports the formation of a treaty between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, somehow does not meet community standards in their eyes. Okay? That's the reality. It is a privately owned uh, business, Facebook. It is nothing more, nothing less. You are the product. Normally, you, you, you pay money for a service or a product and you receive that service for a product. What Facebook has done is actually inverted uh, the equation. You are the product. You use the service, but you are the product. They set the rules. So if you want to join public interest before corporate interest or you want to learn more about public interest before corporate interest, the way you can do that is very simple. Just go to pipsy.net, P-I-B-C-I dot net, and 
download the application form to form the joint PIPSI. Now, applications have been coming in dribs and drabs over the last few weeks. That little initial rush seems to have um, evaporated. And I think most people are hesitant about joining public interest before corporate interest, not because Facebook thinks we are not, we do not meet community standards, whatever their community standards are. But because a lot of people are thinking, especially during the COVID-19 crisis, there's no point. Now, we don't think we're going to be the government. We have no illusions. We don't even think we're going to have anybody elected to Parliament. But our major aim in registering public interest before corporate interest is to broaden the political debate. For example, with the end of the COVID-19 crisis and the economic crisis, which is going to uh, follow the COVID-19 crisis, let's not forget that alternative ideas like the having a economic life raft, a universal basic income to look after people during, you know, if there are crises or during times of personal need. Ideas like uh, forming a treaty or signing a treaty with this country's Indigenous uh, people, First Nations people. Ideas like this is what we are interested in promoting in the general community. And a good way of promoting ideas in the general community is by being a registered political party. Not just a single-issue party, which, you know, raises its head on a single issue, but a multi-issue organisation which is interested in promoting the concept of animal, of uh, radical reform, obviously including animal welfare rights in that radical reform agenda. Now, obviously, we are not a perfect organisation. We are made up of people. We have over 430 members currently on the Australian electoral roll. We need at least 550. We need 550 to apply for registration to the federal political party. My concern is that as the social uh, restrictions are lifted and the economy splutters back into life, People will be so concerned about their personal economic circumstances, their personal circumstances, business circumstances, that that desire for change will dissipate and disappear without organisations like PIPSI, public interest before corporate interest, promoting those ideas as central ideas in the community and using the electoral process as a mechanism as one mechanism of promoting those ideas. I mean, we also uh, use direct action. We also use community boycotts. We're involved in peaceful, non-violent activity against the status quo. So if you want to continue business as usual, fine. If you want to continue listening to the anarchist world this week and, you know, just ruminate about what we're saying, that's fine. But if you want to do a little bit more, and it doesn't matter if you're 99 or you're younger, 
then I encourage you to join public interest before corporate interest because without new members, we will never achieve that goal of broadening the political, social and cultural debate and agenda in Australia. Joining is easy. You can download the application form from pipcpibci.net and you can send it back via the World Wide Web. You can send it back. You download it, fill it, sign it, send it back. If you haven't got a printer or you're not computer, you don't use computers for a variety of reasons, and I can understand why, you can always leave a message on 0439. 395-489-0439-395-489 or you can actually uh, write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. There are two notable figures in Australian society that have kind of uh, pulled up stumps, one metaphorically, and one lost the uh, game of life. I'm going to mention one briefly, very briefly. Now, the people of Australia have had to put up with the cancer, cancerous ideas spread by Mr. Alan Jones from his radio pedestal for the last 35 years. And what disgusts me is not his ideas, but the way that people in authority have bowed and scraped to this man and how they have promoted his agenda. His agenda. Now, Mr. Alan Jones has told everybody that he's leaving 2GB at the end of the month because of health concerns. Well, the reality is a little bit different. I think it's important uh, in a medium where truth is hard to come by that we actually put the facts on the table. Channel 9 has finally been able to acquire 2GB. Now, Channel 9 acquired the Fairfax Corporation and now it's acquired a large number of radio stations across the country. Community campaigns against Mr. Alan Jones have resulted in over 80 advertisers leaving the radio station he broadcasts from. And don't forget that Mr. Alan Jones doesn't broadcast for peanuts like me. I haven't been paid one cent in 43 years. I actually have to pay for the privilege of using uh, on-air time at community radio station 3CR, right? He gets paid $4 million a year, which is $200,000 a week. And he did enter, he just entered a two-year contract. He knows that his time will come to an end at 4GB. He knows he is a financial liability and the bean counters that Channel 9, who now run the Fairfax Media as well as the Channel 9 uh, complex, realise this man is not going 
going to make a profit for them, considering the number of court cases for defamation which have been lost by Mr Alan Jones. I've got nothing personally against Mr Alan Jones. You will be able to, uh, you know, if you like Mr Jones, he'll still be on Fox News, because obviously that has been uh, bankrolled by his mate, Mr Murdoch, and uh, all those spin-offs. They'll be there spewing their poison uh, at a regular basis. But Jones became powerful, especially in Sydney and New South Wales, for one very good reason. The political elites, the leaders of the political parties, refused to take him head on because they were worried about the electoral consequences. And this is what happens when you don't take on people whose ideas are not only offensive, but whose ideas create a lot of dissension and chaos in the community. So I say farewell, Mr Jones. I'm not going to mention your name again on this program. Farewell. Enjoy your money. I'm sure you will, and I'm sure there will be a spot in heaven for you in the next few years. This is the Atticus World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Now, I want to talk about some other Sydney ciders who are much more powerful influence in society, who did much more for the community, not just in New South Wales, but for Australia and the world. Men who are not remembered. Men who never became rich because of their activism. But men who made a significant difference to Australian society. Now, a few of our listeners may know that Mr Jack Mundy died on the 10th of May. That's a few days ago this year. Jack reached the ripe old age of 90. Mr Jack Mundy was the secretary of the New South branch of the Builders Labourers Federation. He was elected secretary in 1968, and he had some very able deputy secretaries who assisted him. There was Mr. Joe Owens, a great addict, activist and radical, who died in 2012, and Mr. Bob, Bob Pring, Pringle, another act, uh, activist and trade unionist, who had tragically died in a swimming accident in the central coast of New South Wales, I think, in 19, it was either 1994 or 1996. Now, what I want to do is not just pay tribute to these three men, especially Jack, who just died a few days ago, but I want to pay tribute to what they did. And they did an extraordinary amount of work in an extremely short period of time. They didn't act alone because being a young man in the 1970s, the, early, the late 1960s, the early part of the 1970s, everything seems possible. But we must remember the way building workers were treated in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. I remember when I first came to Melbourne in 1970, I needed some work. I was told to stand on a street corner with another 50 men and a bloke would turn up in a truck and he'd say, you, 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 
you jump on the truck, you do a day's work, and then you get some cash, some minimal cash payment at the end of the day. This is the way builders' labourers have been treated on construction sites in this country for decades. Basically disposable garbage, they were considered to be. Unskilled, underpaid, no safety in the workplace, and the list goes on and on. This is my personal... I'm talking... Uh, personal experience that I only did it for a short period of time. Now there are men who had men and boys, young men, young men and and men who had to do this decade after decade after decade. Uh, this uh, did this type of irregular work in order to support their family. People like Jack Mundy and Bob Pringle and uh, Joe Owens in New South Wales. And uh, people like Cummins and Gallagher in uh, Victoria organised the builders' labourers into a cohesive, strong trade union which was able to use its muscle to not only improve the working conditions of their members and wages and safety of their members, but in Jack Mundy's case and Joe Owen's case and Bob Pringle's case, they're actually able to transform the nature of trade unions, not just in Australia, but worldwide. Now, I'll give you a little bit of background of Jack Mundy because he only died a few days, as I said, on the 10th of May, a few days ago. Now, Jack was born in a little town called, uh, forgive my pronunciation, Maldana, in, uh, which is about 100 kilometres west of Cairns in far north Queensland. He went to the local primary... He was born in 1929. He went to the local primary school and uh, uh, he was one of five children and his mother died when he was six years old. He was also educated at St Augustine's... I think it was a boarding school in Cairns which he ran away from because he, he couldn't just... He was a type of bloke who couldn't be disciplined, couldn't stand the type of discipline that was being dished out in these institutions in those days. So instead of, you know, taking it, he just left. And he worked his way down to Sydney and arrived in Sydney at 19, at the beginning of World War One, uh, World War Two, I should say. He was a metal worker and then became a builder's labourer. He joined the uh, Communist Party in 1957. Uh, he uh, his first wife's first name was Stephanie. They had one son called Jack, and uh, his wife died six months after their son was born from a cerebral tumour. So uh, Jack Mundy didn't have an easy life. He didn't have an easy personal life. Now, everything seemed to have changed as far as trade unionism was concerned. When Mr. Mundy and Mr. Pringle and Mr. Owens made, were contacted by this middle class bourgeois movement in Hunters Hill in uh, Sydney in 1970, who wanted to save a local park. Now, these mainly women uh, had had no success because during this period, let's not forget that. New South Wales was the most corrupt state in Australia. It made uh, 
Bjelke Peterson's Queensland look like clean. And if you know Bjelke Peterson's Queensland, as I knew Bjelke Peterson's Queensland, there's nothing you could say about the corruption that the Bjelke Peterson government didn't know. I remember one famous quip from Mr Bjelke Peterson was that uh, when somebody found out that he'd collected $400,000 in a brown paper bag, which is equivalent to about $3 million these days, as a political donation, he said, well, does everybody get money in brown paper bags left behind their office doors? <laughs> Extraordinary. Now, Mr Askin was as corrupt as corrupt can be. The New South Wales government was corrupt. The Labor right was corrupt. They were hand in glove with the developers who wanted to transform Sydney, Sydney into a metal, glass, concrete box. That's what we wanted to do. And when Mr Mundy and Mr Pringle and Mr Owens took charge of the BLS in 1968, they introduced a number of very important reforms which nobody's going to mention when they mention Jack Mundy and his crew. They'll mention the green bands and the heritage and all that stuff. But the most important thing they did is they democratised their union. These were libertarian communists. These were left-leaning, freedom-loving communists. Unlike their counterparts in Victoria, with the VLF, the Builders' Labor's Federation, was run by Maoists, who were authoritarian communists, who had a top-down type of uh, structure. The structure that the BLF, that Owen, Pringle, and Mundy created in New South Wales was a democratic union structure where the rank and file was just as important, if not more important, than the permanent uh, people in the union. It was a democratic union. And through multiple discussions and through a very effective campaign of introducing black bands, which is total... Uh, stoppages on building sites and grey bands, which were partial stoppages on building sites, they were able to transform the lives of builders, labourers in that state. But Mundy, Owens and Pringle did not stop at uh, transforming their union and democratising the, the Builders Labourers Federation, the New South Wales branch. They believed that trade unions should embrace their local community because trade unions are nothing more than an extension of workers coming and, and, and working collectively and working together. That was their belief. And when these well-dressed perfumed women turned up at BLF headquarters and asked for assistance, they were given assistance, and a green ban was placed on Hunter's Park to stop development. So the essence of the New South Wales BLF was it was not just about jobs for their members, because they would have got more jobs if they developed Hunter's Park. The essence was what type of society do we create for our members and for the community as a whole? And having green 
open spaces was important. Now, this led to a range of uh, green bans being imposed all over New South Wales. And they weren't imposed because of heritage concerns. A lot of people think they were imposed because of heritage concerns. The green bands that were imposed on the rocks and Victoria Street and other parts of New South Wales were imposed on the principle of working people being able to enjoy the lifestyle they were accustomed to in their areas and not being pushed out by developers. I mean, this, these campaigns were not a cakewalk. These were exceptionally difficult campaigns which required strength, determination and the ability to work collectively with the people around them. And they did not just extend to green bands. Remember, this is the early 1970s. We're talking about the period between 1970 and 1975. They introduced black bands, B-L-A-K bands, where they tried to stop the housing department the New South Wales Housing Department, uh, racially cleansing Redfern. I mean, we all understand that Redfern is a hub of the Aboriginal community in Sydney. But in the early 70s, it wasn't for the black band, which the uh, builders, New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation um, put on Redfern. I can assure you there'd be no Aboriginal people left in Redfern today. It'd be a concrete, massive concrete and steel and glass. And they did that in consultation and working together with the emerging black power movement in the Indigenous struggle in this country in the 1970s. So they transformed the nature of what a union could be. They were not just interested in the wages and conditions of their members. They were interested in the, in the amenities their members could access. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. If you don't have any amenities, if you can't live in the place you, you've lived for generations, what's the point of having all this money? There's no point. So they changed the nature of trade unionism. They were instrumental in the plethora of changes which have occurred regarding trade unionism in the last 45 years, and I'll speak about that later on. In Victoria, the BLF also was forced to introduce green bands. And although it was a Maoist-led union under Mr Norman Gallagher, they introduced a series of bands as a reaction to the fact they were being left behind by the libertarian communist element uh, in, uh, in Sydney. But the ACTU under Bob Hawke was very concerned about the radical nature of the, uh, the New South Wales branch because they not only, not only put forward green bands and Bands for federal Redford. They also put bands on a college in, in 19, I think it was 1974, in Sydney, which expelled the University of Sydney, which expelled an openly gay uh, border. So, across all the social issues of the time, in a time where being gay was illegal, 
So this is a union, not just a heart with a plan. Their plan was to create a society which looked after the needs of people. And it was not an easy struggle. There were mass occupations. There were battle in the streets. They had to deal with the gangster elements which threatened them at the point of the gun time and time again. Don't forget, this was the period when Janita Nielsen, uh, the publisher, uh, disappeared. It was murdered, disappeared. Her body has never been found. So the Afghan uh, Liberal Party, uh, the New South Wales Labor Rights, and the developers, uh, in conjunction with uh, Hawkey and the ACTU, were a formidable opposition. Now, in 1975, Norm Gallagher who was the uh, Secretary of the Builders' Labour's Federation nationally as well as the Victorian branch, organised for the New South Wales branch to be disaffiliated. And they came down, to, they went up to Sydney in a convoy of cars and forcefully evicted the New South Wales branch from their premises. And they evicted them for one very good reason, because they were concerned about the amount of heat that was being drawn on the trade union movement by the, by the expansion of the activities of the rank and file in the New South Wales branch of the Builders' Labourers' Federation. They didn't want the same disease to spread into other parts of the trade union movement, which they controlled with an iron grip. So here you see the, the classical the classical divide between libertarian communists who are people who believe in you know, a, a communist way of life but based on freedom and authoritarian communists who believe in a top-down uh, approach. Now, Norm Gallagher and his mob in Victoria were never forgiven for what they did to the New South Wales BLF. And uh, paradoxically, uh, less than a decade later, Mr. Gallagher found himself in prison in Victoria and a few years later the, the Victorian branch of the BLF was, uh, was uh, disaffiliated by the Kane Labor government. So, Jack, I know I've met you on a number of occasions. I know you didn't believe in God. I know you had a very hard life. I mean, he, um, his only son, his only child, Jack, died in a car accident at the age of 20 in 1977. So he read a lot of things. He continued to struggle in the environment movement. Uh, when the Communist Party disbanded, he joined the Green. He received uh, many honours in his life uh, for the work, work he had done, receiving honorary doctorate of letters and, uh, I think, science from the uh, University of uh, Western Sydney for his activities. He was involved in conservation work for uh, many, many decades. And uh, he's a man to be admired. Not just Mr. Mundy, not just Mr. Owen, not just Mr. Pringle, but all those men and the few women in, at that time involved in the Builders Labourers Federation. And their legacy is, in order of importance, in my opinion, is one, industrial democracy, direct democracy in the workplace, the rank and file deciding on the actions which will be taken by that organisation to the imposition of green bans across the country, saving many of the historic sites 
which have been saved, not just for the heritage value, but for to protect working class environments in the inner cities around this country. And if you go around Sydney and Melbourne and to a lesser degree Adelaide and Perth, you will see still enclaves of uh, housing where people with minimal income rub shoulder to shoulder with the rich and powerful. And that is a legacy of that New South Wales branch of the uh, of the trade union movement. So rest in peace, Mr Jack Mundy, because I can assure you uh, employers and developers in this country will not be resting in peace because we need to remember that, you know, a lot of people think the past is the past. This is a eulogy to a time, you know, uh, gone by, but uh, what's the point? Uh, the reality is that... Um, the past isn't the past. The past isn't dead. It's not dead. It's within us. So that struggle is within each and every one of us. And it is highlighted in the struggles that are occurring around this country today. Struggles for reform, uh, struggles for uh, change, uh, struggles to uh, protect individuals. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Look, some of you have commented to me about, I think it was foreign correspondent, having a segment on the West Parkland independence movement about how that struggle has not finished, about the armed conflict which is occurring all over West Papua, about the displacements of tens of thousands of West Papuans into the cities. And I think it's important to remember that um, we have been supporters of the West Papua independence movement for many, many years. As convener of the West Papua Ren Collective, which is an organisation which was set up six years ago, to pay the rent for a West Papua Independence Office in Melbourne. I think now is the time to ask people to join the rent collective. The West Papua Independence struggle has been going for over 60 years. It will not go away. It is one of the last decolonisation struggles on the planet. West Papua is less than 75 kilometres from North Australia, less than 75 kilometres. Don't forget in 2006, when over 40 West Papuans came across as refugees in a traditional canoe from West Papua. So you can actually understand how close these two nations are. And West Papua should be an independent nation. Now, the idea behind the West Papua Rent Collective is very simple. Most West Papuans in Australia, in Australia are either asylum seekers or refugees. Nearly all of them are asylum seekers or refugees. They have minimal income. Most of them are working in uh, bread and butter jobs, which basically just pay for the roof over their heads. But they've got this fire in their belly to promote and extend the West Papua independence struggle, and they have been pivotal in bringing that struggle to the attention of people around the world. And the West Papuan office at Docklands in Melbourne has played a pivotal role 
in that struggle to achieve independence. And I'm proud to have been associated with West Papua independent activists for over over six or seven years, and I'm proud to have been the convener for the, and still the current convener for the West Papua Gwen Collective. But like all organisations, as time flies by, we've got a problem. We need new members to the West Parkland Ren Collective, we, and we need them now, not tomorrow. It's very easy to join. It's a dollar a day. You can pay up front if you've got the cash reserves, or you can pay $30 on a monthly basis. Very simple. You can do it electronically. You can walk into a branch of a Commonwealth bank and put the money in. We don't. We have three or four gatherings every year for Ren Collective members. The last gathering, unfortunately, was virtual, but which it was exceptional. It was a successful gathering, but it was a virtual gathering, so you don't actually have that uh, interaction, which is so important. The office has been running uh, at the reduced levels through the COVID-19 crisis, but it will be opening up in the next few weeks uh, to full activity uh, once social restrictions are lifted. So the rent needs to be paid. We need new rent collective members, and we need them now. So if you've got some extra income because of a job keeper, which you didn't expect, this is one way of actually uh, promoting a struggle for justice and freedom and equality in a, in a part of the world which is very near to us. And don't expect the La- Liberal National Party or the Australian Labor Party to do anything about West Papua independence. It's only the Australian Greens that have. But the office is fundamental to their ability to coordinate this struggle for independence, not just in West Papua, but around the world. So if you want to join the Red Collective, you can do it in a number of ways. You can ring me on 0439 395 489, 0439 395 489, and I'll send you out the necessary material. Or you can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052, or you can email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com or you can email me at info at pipcpibci.net. While we've still got a few minutes, just like to remind you that I do have a Facebook page, yes, it's called Joseph Toscano. Just to remind you that Reconciliation Week is just around the corner, uh, although it's going to be a virtual uh, reality Reconciliation Week for a lot of people. Uh, it still is important. Reconciliation Week is booked in by National Surrey Day and Marvo Day on the 3rd of June. So don't forget Reconciliation Week. Uh, we'll be involved in activities and I'll be promoting some of that via the Facebook page. Just go to Joseph Toscano or the other Facebook page, Toscano, for the public. Now, if you're involved in the public housing struggle, it hasn't ended. Public housing is back on the agenda. It's back on the agenda for a number of reasons. It's back on the agenda. Uh, because the CFMMEU and the uh, developers have uh, concerned about uh, construction falling off a cliff in the next few months, and their members have been out of work, and they're pushing the concept of uh, social affordable housing. It's uh, public housing still on the agenda, which isn't, obviously, isn't public housing. It's on the agenda because of the thousands of people in hotel rooms who are homeless, who are picked up off the streets, who will now be disgorged back onto the streets. So... Two websites to go to, so two Facebook pages to go to, Defend and Extend Public Housing or uh, Public Housing Everybody's Business. You can go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org. You can go to the uh, 
Facebook page or the web page for the uh, go to the, uh, the West Parkland office. Just put up West Parkland office docklands and uh, you'll get there. Or the Federal Republic uh, of West Papua uh, trade and I think uh, office or something. It's all there. Just look it up. But uh, I encourage you to join. Also, the broad the station I usually broadcast from 3CR in Melbourne is in a little bit of a pickle. Uh, it needs money. We usually had a radiothon at this time of year, but there will be no radiothon. But there will be an appeal in June. And uh, next uh, week, I'll be setting aside one Wednesday for an appeal. And don't forget that every dollar which is donated to Community Radio 3CR over the sum of $2 is tax deductible. So if the rich and powerful can, you know, uh, have their taxes deducted because they create their own charities, why don't you think about very seriously about donating to Community Radio 3CR and get a tax deduction. But I'll mention that more. I'll, I'll talk more about that next week. I'd also like to thank all those people in Community Radio 3CR that have kept the uh, station open. Uh, it's been closed to volunteers and broadcasters. Hopefully that'll change the next few weeks. I'm sick of smelling the roses and the, the trees around me and being, you know, being caught up in the downpours out here in the country. But that's another story. So let's not forget that. And uh, it's important that we remember. I'd also like to thank all those people in the Community Radio Network that have continued to keep community radio alive in this country during the COVID-19 crisis. As I've said before, the health issues of the honeymoon phase of the COVID-19 crisis. We're about to get into the difficult phase, which is the economic phase. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Log into my YouTube presentation. I do one a week. Go to Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Think about joining Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Download the application form from pipsy.net and go to my Facebook page, Joseph Toscano. But most importantly of all, keep that hope alive in your heart because what we need to remember is that change is possible. But has... Mundy, Owen and Pringle and the thousands of builders, labourers which were involved in that radical period in the early 1970s, both in New South Wales and Victoria, to remember and the rest of Australia is that it's the struggle which causes, creates the opportunity for change and to believe that all effort is useless, that nothing will ever change, is exactly what those to exercise power want you to believe. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. This Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse, 10am every Wednesday. Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.